Feel like some speculating? We'll talk with Ryan Bloomfield, the speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 10th. It's show number 11 of the 2020 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host. We do have another great Tuesday Tout edition for you. We'll talk with Ryan Bloomfield, speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com, about his labor mix draft, which was live on YouTube, his speculations on bounce-back hitters and pitchers, and who might be the next Nick Pavetta, and his Bloomboards analysis posts on Twitter, it's another big Tuesday Tout edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Time to do some speculating. we got to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Tuesday Tout edition, part one of our interview with our feature tout, guest expert Ryan Bloomfield, the speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. You go from being a regular a couple of years ago to an occasional guest uh, a little bit after that to vanishing off the firmament altogether, and now you're back. <laughs> I am back. Thanks for having me, PD. It's nice to be back in the saddle, and for your sake, so that you know I'm still alive. So good, good to be back. Oh, I know you're still alive. I follow you on Twitter. I really enjoy your Twitter feed. We'll talk about that a little later. But I always like to start off by asking about your drafts. How many are you doing, and how are they going so far? Yeah, drafts are drafts are going great. They're ramping up. It's a really exciting time of year. I've I've already done about five drafts or six drafts. Man, um, TGFBI and, and Labor Mix are the big ones there, and then the other four have been uh, the draft and hold format from the NFBC, the fifty round, um, fifty round drafts where you don't have to do in season fab because that you know that first Sunday of the uh, of the in, of the year when you realize you're in too many leagues and that can be that can be bad so I, i've done a bunch of draft and holds and then two big ones coming up this weekend uh one of which you're in and i'm looking forward to seeing you man um al towers on saturday in new york city and then i'm doing another nfbc draft right after that so i will be uh i will be thirsty by the time we by the time we get to foley's next saturday night and then uh then i've got an oregon um Home league draft the next weekend, a seven by seven league, so that's always fun. And uh, and yeah, then we're almost at this at opening day. You mentioned the uh, draft and hold. Are you playing in the Raz Slam Experts League? It's a forty-two round draft and hold. I am not. That is the one time where I showed restraint. I kind of wish I did, but um, just too many leagues. And I know the Raz Slam is, uh, I believe, just two fab periods during the entire year, which is helpful, but it was just a brand new format for me. I didn't really have time to, to get up to speed with the, with the points league. So, um, I've heard it's going great, but no, I, I did show some restraint and decline that one. The, uh, draft and holds that you are playing in, are they not points leagues? No, they are traditional five by five. Um, and I kind of use them, as prep for for my bigger drafts that you know that start right about now and and go through the through opening day so those are your traditional five by five um 24 man 
starters, nine pitchers, and um, really good way to, to go really deep into the player pool. Once you get past like round 30, you're researching guys who you normally wouldn't um, in part of your in part of your prep. So um, really like to use those draft and holds as uh, as practice for for right about now. And so your the draft and hold you still have to set a weekly lineup. Yeah, you do. So it's then that's the reason I really like it is you you, you get your fifty guys at the at, at the draft. Um, usually they're slow drafts, so they take a week or two. Um, you know, throughout January February, and then that's your team. So that those are your 50 guys. You do still set your lineups in the NFBC. You set weekly lineups every Monday, and then you can change your hitters every Friday. So it's pretty minimal maintenance. Um, doesn't take too long. And the NFBC is really good about when, if you have multiple teams, you can. It's very efficient. You can go through your teams pretty quickly and and set your lineups. So um, that's minimal maintenance during the year, which is really what I'm looking for um, when you draft so much in draft season is to try and limit those those Sunday Fab nightmares when you've got you know five leagues and and you need to do Fab for each one. It's not not good for the family life. <laughs> Tell me about it. Uh, it's certainly true. Uh, when you're getting 50 players into the in each team, that's uh, is it a 12 team league? So 600 guys altogether. That's pretty like you're, you said. You're digging deeply into the player pool, but that's really deep. Yeah, it's actually 15 teams. We're going 750 players deep. Um, and honestly, yeah, once I start to get to round. four, 40 ish there are guys who i have not heard of being taken in these drafts and it's good though i mean you get you say you know who is that guy and you you dig into him and and see if he's worth you know if there's something there um for for a late stab i'm kind of noticing the same thing with our al tout wars and, and prep for that um that's going really deep as well, just because it's 12 teams AL only. So, um, again, those, those draft and holds, it's, it's once you get into that really deep level player pool, it, it, it's good to open your eyes to guys that, A, you haven't even heard of, and B, probably should if uh, smart people are drafting them, even in like the 40th round. Can you think of an example of a guy that uh, somebody drafted that you hadn't heard of that now that you've heard of him, you looked into it and thought, wow, interesting guy? Yeah, actually, and I probably should have heard of this guy. I'm not, I'm not the biggest prospect guy in the world. That's where a lot of these prospects get taken is, the, you know, in these late rounds where, you know, if, if you're in the 40th, 45th round and this prospect never gets called up, it's kind of like, well, I, I wasted a 45th round pick on him. No harm, no foul. Um, one guy who who's really starting to bubble up, and at first I was like, who is that? Is And I might mispronounce it, but uh, uh, Tarek Skubal, Tariq Skubal of uh, Detroit. Um, prospect who probably won't break camp with the team, um, but has really shown uh, a lot of skills last year and doing really well in spring training this year. Actually, Emily Walden of The Athletic just wrote a really in-depth article on Scooball and uh, really starting to push up my draft boards. But, but at, you know, earlier in January, I, I did not know who that was. And so then you, you know, you take a couple minutes and figure out, oh yeah, this guy dominated in the minors last year. He's got some prospect pedigree, our HQ minors guys and the minor league analysts and org reports write him up a lot and, and are very high on him. So uh, Scooball is, is an example of a guy who I, uh, who I'm now targeting, who I did not know who he was a few, a few months ago. Funny you should mention that. I just added uh, Tariq Skubal to my uh, draft list on my uh, Raz Slam online. We're still going through the sort of the 30-ish round area. And uh, 
mm-hmm. I saw his name, I thought, you know what would be fantastic is if this guy threw a screwball. The screwball <laughs> Fantastic pitch for him to throw. I'm sure he doesn't, but uh, maybe somebody ought to mention it to him so he could brand it and become famous on YouTube or something like like you are, as a matter of fact, as we'll talk about it later. In all of the drafts you're doing, have you noticed any strategic differences or strate- uh, tactical differences in drafts compared to last year? Um. A little bit. I mean, the the big thing that we're hearing all draft season is that you need to get your your steals, your speed early, just because there's not much of it, and you don't want to get those one trick pony type guys um, early in the draft. So the the guys who who run are getting taken very early. Um, that's showing through in draft season. So your your Jonathan Vrs, um, Victor Robles, Alberto Mondesi, kind of the guys who all their or majority of their value is tied up in bags. Those guys really are getting getting pushed up. Another thing I'm noticing is closers. So I think drafters, especially early drafters, really felt the effects of um, of Edwin Diaz and Blake Trinan going belly up last season as the first two closers off the board. Closers are going pretty late. I mean, Josh Hader uh, is your top guy going around like fourth or fifth round, but your main kind of big tier of established closers is getting pushed down to like the eighth or ninth round. And when I talk rounds, I'm talking 15 team league. So, um, you, know, you listeners can, can kind of do the math there, but, uh, closers are very affordable. Um, they're starting to go up. It's starting to correct a little bit here in March, but, um, that's a part of the player pool that I wasn't exactly expecting to, to take closers, but, um, but there, there's definitely some value there. And then starting pitching is going early as ever. That's a trend that's been, been going on for, for the last few years. And I think just because, you know, so many home runs last year, so many runs scored that your elite pitchers, if you can hit on that elite ace, the gap between that ace and your kind of league average starters is, is even wider than it's been in the past. So you've got guys going in the second round, like Jack Flaherty, who doesn't have the the biggest track record, Blake Snell, who, who had, you know, like a over four ERA last year, Shane Bieber, those, those types are getting pushed up, up, up into the second round. It could be even more with, uh, with all these starting pitcher injuries going on most recently with Mr. Verlander. So, so yeah, speed early closers late and starters early as well are three things that I'm, I'm noticing early on. In early drafts, I noticed in my drafts too, the closers had fallen down into, you know, they were kind of sixth round last year and this year it's hater went in the seventh in one of mine and then Yates went in the eighth and then the, but the bulk of them went even as late as nine ten. And I think part of it is when you're drafting this early, there's a lot of uncertainty at the, in the teams themselves about who's going to be the closer. We, of course, we, we understand that Roberto Osuna and Yates and guys like that are locked into jobs, but there's a lot of situations where, uh, you don't really want to splash out, even on an Edwin Diaz, because you know you got Lugo lurking around, you got Batanzas lurking around. So it, even if he has the job coming out of spring training, uh, which we assume he's going to, there's no guarantee that he's going to keep it. And that seems to be the situation in a lot of uh, in a lot of teams. And maybe that's why people are are not willing to take them in the fifth, sixth round because there's added risk, but that risk is going to dissipate as we get closer and closer to opening day. And those roles seem to have solidified, at least in people's minds. Yeah, I, I agree. I, and 
it it's 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 so tough to yeah to draft closers early in in draft season because right you don't know a lot of these guys with the rules and even now like there's there's more and more teams going to a committee or playing matchups uh ray murphy has talked about this a lot with the fractured saves market there are just more relievers getting saves now than ever and there's uh fewer of those you know they're they're obviously still out there but there's there's fewer of those established roles um, you know, lock for 30 plus saves as long as they're, they're pitching well. So, so I don't know. I mean, the market, like, so you made a, you made a great point, PD, that maybe the, those, those kind of vague roles are pushing folks down. But I almost think on the flip side of that, the guys who do have established jobs, like, uh, you know, for example, like a Ken Giles, a Liam Hendricks, um, Rysel Iglesias, those guys are still going pretty late, like ninth or 10th round. Um, I would have thought those guys who who have the role and are, are pretty established in that role would get pushed up just because there is that job security compared to the rest of the market where, um, you know, where there's some um, there's some unknown. So it's interesting. And we'll, we'll see. Like I said, closures are starting to go earlier and earlier. But uh, that was definitely a, an eye opener early in draft season. In the uh, points league that I'm playing in Raz Slam, it's uh, uh, the uh, draft and hold 42 guys. My my strategy is that I'm just going to not draft starting pitchers until, you know, the late rounds where I just sort of throwing darts all over the place. But I got Naris, Giles, and Iglesias in rounds 11, 12, and 14, which is fairly late in a draft to get three closers, I think, that are pretty solid in the jobs barring injury. And then I got Archie Bradley in the 17th. And that that seems very late because uh, Archie Bradley, again, seems like I know there's no such thing as a sure thing, but he's pretty close to a sure thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we say draft skills, not roles, you know, at HQ, but for closers, the role is everything. And all those guys are are established. I know Archie Bradley thrived in the ninth, um, the second half of last year after being shut out from the closer role for much of his career. But yeah, he looks to be totally entrenched. And I would love to take, you know, three or four of those guys uh, where you took them in Raz Slam. So yeah. Good on you. I don't know how many. I don't know how many points a save is worth in that in that format, but uh, that would be awesome to have in five by five. Saves are actually worth more than wins. Uh, eight points for a save, six points for a win. And when you when you think about that, if you have a bunch of thirty save closers, you're talking about uh, some very effective pitchers, because there are negative points for earned runs allowed and uh, and for hits and walks allowed. And closers tend not to give up earned runs and and uh, and hits and walks. So uh, I think maybe there's a profit to be made there. We'll see. Uh, as I said, I I think I drafted my first starting pitcher just the other day, uh, and it was Nate Pearson, who's not even actually in the big leagues, and that was in the reserve rounds, uh, early reserve rounds. So, I guess we'll see. But I guess when we look at this situation, and you you see from your experience drafting and from reading about it and stuff, that there are these trends with uh, you know starting pitchers moving up and closers moving down. Are you the kind of guy who's tries to zag when they're zigging, and and do the opposite, or are you playing along? Um, I'm mostly playing along. Um, I've been taking, I've actually been taking a lot of Garrett Cole and Jacob deGrom where I can in the first round. I just think the safety with those guys is so, so valuable. Um, if I don't get one of those guys early in the, in the first round, I'm waiting until like the fourth to take a starting pitcher. Um, just because and I mentioned this earlier, a lot of the second round starters, I'm, I'm not super high on. I just think the prices are so, um, so inflated but the the big thing that i'm and i learned this last year i fell behind in power in a lot of my leagues and then obviously rbis and and runs that go with that 
Um, I think one thing we're not talking enough about is just how much power you have to have on your roster right now to compete. And that's been a real focus of mine throughout draft season is, and I, I mentioned this at First Pitch Arizona last fall, um, with the with the so-called happy fun ball that we had last year, to finish in the 80th percentile of NFBC leagues, you had to average 26 home runs per hitter um, last year to finish in the 80th percentile in homers. And that includes catchers. That's a two-catcher league. So if you fall behind in power, yes, power is available everywhere in the draft. Everyone says that. The flip side of that is you need more power than ever to, to compete. And that's really been a focus of mine is to really hammer, hammer power um, really at the expensive speed in, in, a lot of, in a lot of drafts. I'm kind of just focusing to uh, finish middle of the pack in steals and then and then bully bully home runs just because you need so much of it and if you take you know that 26 homer average if you take a guy who's only going to hit five or ten home runs a speed guy then you know that 26 average bumps up to even higher it's just even harder to make up so um, that's one thing that I'm doing uh, focusing on the power that uh, I don't think it's talked about enough I couldn't agree more uh, I focused heavily on power this year in uh, both the leagues that I've drafted so far and uh in the early rounds especially, I was putting a premium on, on those power-speed combination guys. Uh, unfortunately, in the league I'm looking at, I was drafting fourth, so I was out on Yelich, Trout, and Acuna, where you're going, there's going to be some speed there, you'd think. But I did get Cody Bellinger. He's good for a few bags. and then But then my next few picks, Jose Ramirez, I think, will steal bags. Bo Bichette, I got him in the fourth, will steal bags. And I even reached for JT Real Muto in the third, not because he's going to steal 25 bags, but he's going to get me some bags from the catcher spot. And uh, I thought, you know what? I need a catcher anyway. I don't want to get stuck with a bad catcher. What do you think of JT Real Muto? And he's been going fairly high in a lot of leagues I've been looking at. Yeah, I took Real Muto in TGFBI, I believe in the fourth round, and really had no trepidation for that. I mean, he's the most durable catcher out there. He plays a lot. Um, so he kind of racks up the counting stats of... Uh, your normal position players, and um, really, really turned it on. And this will be kind of a theme when we go later on bounce back guys, but really turned it on in the second half. Uh, Real Muta did after that kind of adjustment period in a new city with Philadelphia. So I'm I'm full in on on Real Muto if you can get him early, especially in a two catcher league. That value above replacement level um, is gold. And like you said, PD, I mean he does chip in everywhere. He gets some bags to get bags from a from a catcher is almost unheard of in today's game. So, um, yeah, I mean, you're, there's opportunity costs there. When you're taking Real Muto, you are passing up um, a really good hitter or a good pitcher. But um, if he stays healthy as he has, he's going to play all the time in Philly, and, uh, and I, I think that's a fine pick. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ryan Bloomfield, speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com. And Ryan, you took readers through your entire process in the Labor 15-team mixed online draft, as, including you did a live stream on YouTube while the draft was going on, and then you've since posted clips from that as well. Uh, you got some feedback from viewers. How did the experience go? How did you like it? Yeah, that was uh, that was a whirlwind. I, I had a blast. Um, I you know I, I've been talking with Ray Murphy actually over the last couple of years on on maybe doing a live stream for one of these online drafts just to give you know just to give people a glimpse into the draft room for one of these big industry drafts. And um, this was my second year in labor, so I wasn't going to do it my first year, so I don't totally. Um, Totally screwed up in front of everyone, but a little bit more familiar with the league and the players in the league, so I figured, why the heck not? And so I, I streamed it on our YouTube channel, and it was really fun. Um, I had the draft board up 
pretty much so when you log in and, and follow YouTube live, you basically see the draft board as it's happening. And then I had a little cutout of myself, a webcam of me in the corner. I didn't certainly didn't want to make me the focus of, of the draft. Um, and really just talk through my my strategy, what I'm thinking, what I'm thinking of other people's picks uh, throughout the labor mix draft. And it, it really was a blast. We had, I, I had no idea if anyone would even show up, but we ended up having like 60 to 70 people. Most of them stayed, you know, most of the time. And they were chiming in with comments telling me to pick this guy and then I'd ignore it and probably shouldn't have. <laughs> it was good. It wasn't, it, it, by being able to talk through the draft throughout the entire thing, it wasn't as distracting as I thought it might be. That was my big fear is I would be talking about a player or something to the live stream and not even realize I'm on the clock and timeout. Um, but that never happened. Um, I was in tune. I was talking about it the whole time. And it was, it was a lot of fun and got really good feedback from people who just enjoyed me talking um, about my strategy and others. So it was, it was a really good time. It was a, uh, <laughs> it was a Tuesday night. So in our house, that's, that's garbage and recycling night. And all my neighbors bring their garbage cans out. So my, my two dogs did kind of go crazy a couple of times, but, but that's okay. It, 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 it's a real life experience in, in the draft room. You got to juggle uh, family while you're drafting sometimes. I was thinking when I was watching it, uh, Ryan, that talking out loud about this stuff actually might be a bit of a benefit. I kind of talk to myself when I'm making these considerations, and it's not that big of a step to kind of hearing your own voice in your head to speaking it out loud. I wonder if it was liberating in a way to be able to talk to uh, as though you were talking to somebody else. Well, you were talking to somebody else, and especially an, an interested audience, might be a good way to focus your thoughts and, and come up with ideas that you hadn't heard of and do a little crowdsourcing of, uh, of next moves and process. Definitely. Well, it wasn't liberating for my for my wife who was in the room next to me the whole time. But uh, for me, it was it, it really was like being able to to just speak out loud. And I learned that way a lot. Or even if I'm trying to learn something, I'll take notes on something. And, you know, with, you know, the old school pen and paper. And I just I process things better that way. So, yeah, I was much more in tune to the flow Um by talking through it the whole time. There were a couple times where it's a one minute clock. There were a couple times where I got sniped where, you know, guys went right before I was going to pick. And, you know, we all know that feeling, but I did kind of freeze up a, a few times and really had to focus on, okay, who the heck am I going to take now and kind of avoid the live stream. But um, that only happened a couple times and that's part of the draft. So in all, like I would, I, I definitely will plan on doing that again if I do another online draft this year, but definitely for labor next year, uh, the feedback was awesome. And just in general, like, you know, live streaming content. We're doing that with the first pitch forums, the the online first pitch, which we're in the middle of right now. Um, people really eat that stuff up if they can't travel or if, you know, they just want to log on and get access to to analysts and their thoughts. And if you throw a draft board or some slides on to kind of to reinforce what you're saying, people really enjoy that uh, that format and that type of content. You said in the article about the uh, live stream and your review of your labor draft when you wrote it up for BaseballHQ.com that part of your planning process was to sketch out a couple of scenarios for how the draft might go, especially in the early rounds and then uh, late, uh, some preparation as well for the later rounds. Those, you basically came up with two scenarios for the early part of the draft. Uh, how did the, what was the gist of those and how did they pan out? 
Yeah, so the general gist, and I like to do this for pretty much any draft that I'm in. So when you know your draft slot ahead of time, <clears throat> you can, um, and I had the 13th pick out of, out of the 15 teams, you can try and map out with the ADP and get a general feel for what types of players are going to be available at your slot. Not only just for that first round, and really I, I focus on the first round last. I map that out for my first four rounds. So in this case, I was going through like the top 50 picks, which you still, you know, if you go by ADP, you can get, you, you can get a pretty decent feel for who's going to be available. And I just mapped out two scenarios, one of which <clears throat> was, you know, if I start with a pitcher or the other, if I start with a hitter. But I really like to work my way down and go back up. So what I noticed in this draft at the 13th slot, I didn't really like a lot of the hitters that would have been available to me in the third and fourth rounds. Um, so that altered my draft strategy in the first two rounds. So what I wanted to do was ideally take two hitters, uh, 13th and I guess 18th overall, and then bypass that kind of tier of hitters who I wasn't totally high on in the third and fourth and so I ended up taking um, Freddie Freeman and Jose Ramirez with my first two picks and then going starter not until the fourth round. But that's something I really like to do in those first four rounds is just see who's going to be available in each of those first four. After you get to four rounds, it gets kind of tough to, to guess who's going to be available. It's kind of a waste of time. Um, but I do use those kind of later rounds to guide what I might want to do in the, in the first couple. And, and I've been successful with that in the, in the last few years. It's a really outstanding way to think about it. Uh, you, you mentioned you took Freddie Freeman. Uh, you could have had Nolan Arenado, who probably would have been the consensus choice at that pick. Uh, what made you lean towards Freeman rather than Arenado? Yeah, that was tough. And I mentioned I took Jose Ramirez in the second round. Like there's a, there's a big group of hitters I think around like 12th to 20th who are all kind of the same. Like it's kind of just flipping a coin with who you want. Um, in this case, I just, I like Freddie Freeman a lot more, um, than Arenado and really, so labor took place, this was February 5th. So this is almost, this is about a month and a half ago. And this was like the height of the Nolan Arenado trade rumors. Um, he was not happy and I guess still is not happy with the front office, but, um, there were trade rumors flying around Arenado. It seemed like a, like a sure thing at the time that he would get traded. So that was kind of the factor with me in, in Arenado at the time was, um, you know, I don't think he'll totally fall flat. He's a great hitter if he ever left course, but, uh, Freddie Freeman was just the safer play to me. Um, I think they have very comparable power home run skills or power and batting average skills. Freeman gets a little bit more bags and I just love where Freddie Freeman is hitting in the lineup that Atlanta lineup. He's going to be hitting behind Albies and Acuna and in front of Marcelo Zuna, um, I, I, I'm really high on Freddie Freeman. It sounds like his elbow is okay this year as well. He played really hurt last year and was still really good. So I'm expecting big things from, from Freddie Free in the first round. There's a lot of third basemen in those first rounds too. Uh, you, you got Arenado, you mentioned Ramirez, but Rendon, De Devers, Alex Brigman, they're all those kind of high-level guys. So um, they're going to go early, which means that if you're not going to get your third baseman right away, you might be uh, moving down uh, a little bit as well. Uh, that was uh, that played into Jose Ramirez, I imagine. Yeah, that that did. Um, so I talked about mapping out my first four rounds. I also so later in the draft, I like to kind of bucket out guys by position just count up how many guys I like and I really didn't like too many third basemen later in the draft so I did want to if I could you know all things equal get a third baseman early 
Ramirez fit the bill for me. Um, you know, he's had an elite track record. He's been a first-round player for like three years. He did have, you know, that awful first half last season, and 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 ended finished slowly in in 2018 as well. But even when he was even when Ramirez was slumping in the first half of last year, the skills were still you know pretty much on par with what he had been doing, and he had been uh, still running. So the steals had always been there, even when he was slumping, and that was the big thing for me. Um, you know, I talked about focusing on power, but if I can get like a Jose Ramirez and PD, you meant you kind of hit on this earlier. If I can get someone who runs but also contributes in the other you know four categories. That's that's the kind of guy I'm targeting. So it was it was great to lock up um, an early steel base without sacrificing my other categories. So it was funny. I, I mean, I could have taken Jose Ramirez in the first round and kind of flipped him and Freddie Freeman. I almost think that it wouldn't have mattered which one I took in the first or second round. Um, I think the other one would have been avail- been available where I was where I was picking. I noticed that Fernando Tatis Jr. went a couple of picks after you took Ramirez. Did you ever consider him? I did not. I just, uh, Tatis, number one overall upside, but for me, there's just too much risk there in terms of games played. He's only averaged about 80 games played the last two years. I'm not ready to call him Tatis injury prone at all. He's like 21 years old. Um, the world's ahead of him, but uh, too much too much risk, too low of a floor for me to consider him in the first two rounds. I, I, get, I get the argument to take him, but um, I don't want to. I don't want to lose my draft that early. You said in the article you were a little concerned with second base this season, and part of that issue was that the top guys at the position, Altuve, Gleyber Torres, Kettle Marte, and Ozzy Albies, weren't really second round material. Especially as you had uh, a pretty early pick in the uh, th- in the fourth round, so a late pick in the third round, and uh, the top guys flew off the board in the third before you had a chance to pick you still could have grabbed Jonathan VR you might have grabbed Keston Hiura without reaching too far you could have even maybe uh, grabbed a semi-elite pitcher like Patrick Corbin but you took George Springer the Houston outfielder and I've read that outfield is not as lush as we tend to think of it in past years was that part of your rationale for pick number 43 what were you thinking on George Springer (laughs) what was I thinking it sounds like you didn't like the pick man no, I, I thought it was perfectly justifiable. I was just wondering about your thought process because, yeah. you know, usually or a lot of times when we strategize or pl- plan our tactical approach to a draft, the assumption is that outside of Acuna, Trout, and Yelich, there's going to be plenty of outfielders later on, so you want to try to focus on getting those infielders and catchers that uh, that are going to be much scarcer as you get farther down the draft. But you went went ahead and took a, a very premium outfielder, don't get me wrong, and a guy with a lot of potential and a guy with a terrific track record as well. I just wondered about you know what the thinking was to go for an outfielder when you might have reached uh, uh, not too much to get a, an infielder or maybe even a catcher. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Springer, I wasn't like... You know, I wasn't enamored to take him in the third round, and he's actually going later than that now in drafts, kind of the fourth. For me, it was it, kind of what I was talking about earlier is just just hitting power as hard as I can early in the drafts. I, I think Springer does have a, a really high floor, a really good power floor, and he's going to rack up plate appearances in Houston and could go off on a, you know, on a Houston-related tangent here, but I, I'm not really devaluing Astros hitters um, that much at all um, this draft season. So Springer just seemed like the safest choice. You know, 
VR would have been fine as well if I want to take that that stolen base. But with with Jose Ramirez, the you know the pick before him, um, I decided to to kind of neutralize that with power. Honestly, you know, you mentioned Patrick Corbin. I have a lot of Patrick Corbin this year as well. And if I had to do it over again, I might have grabbed Corbin there. Um, hindsight being twenty twenty, of course. If I take Corbin in the third round, I I took Kershaw in the fourth, and maybe I didn't. Maybe I maybe I don't take James Paxton <laughs> in the sixth round the night before he goes in for surgery. Um, if I take Corbin there in the third, but um, still happy happy with the with with Springer there. I I just you know I think he's safe, and I'm going for safe in the in the first few rounds. Safe, he is. Uh... You got a closer and a half, we'll say. Uh, Taylor Rogers looks like a sure thing in the eighth round, so you have to be pleased with that. Uh, Ian Kennedy of Kansas City in the 14th, a bit more risk there. He could get traded. You know, he's he's uh, relatively long in the tooth. There's some guys jockeying around behind him. Was the kind of closer and a half approach part of your scenario planning, or were you just playing what the table was giving you at that time? Yeah, I mean, that, that's really part of the plan. And uh, I touched on this at first for Arizona as well. I mean, the closer hit rates are just horrible. Um, last year, really the last couple of years on average, <clears throat> your closers that start the season with the closer job, um, there's about a th- one in three chance that they're going to end the season in that same closer job. So <clears throat> you're taking a, a <clears throat> 33% bet that uh, your closer is gonna gonna stick all year. So and that goes across the player pool, even the top guys. So I, I didn't want to get a closer too early. We talked about that earlier. So I was happy to get Rogers in the eighth. Kennedy in the fourteenth. I'm getting a lot of. Um, I just really like like yes, he's Ian Kennedy. And during the live stream, I really wondered out loud why I was taking Ian Kennedy in a labor mix draft. Um, he's just been horrible the last few years, but really turned things around as a reliever. He had 30 saves last year. I don't, I don't, I don't know how many people realize that, but 30 saves on a, on a bad team will play with me. Velocity was way up once he went from a, from the rotation to, uh, to the bullpen focused on his, on his two best pitches as a reliever. So with that transition, the skills got a lot better. And yeah, in the 14th round, like I will, uh, I will definitely take a stab on Kennedy. I, I do, I do feel that, um, that, that the transformation is, is legit at least for another year by going from the rotation to the, uh, to, to the bullpen. Talked about catchers, you took Carson Kelly of Arizona two full rounds ahead of his where his ADP would suggest he should have been taken at the time. Yeah, Kelly, I and this was this was actually a fun one on the live stream. So I was I was picking thirteenth and I was looking at, you know, who at fourteen and fifteen were gonna go, and they both needed catchers at the time, so I pulled the trigger on Kelly. This was, yeah, the 13th round, so I don't really look at ADP that much at that point in the draft. It's just so wide. I'm just a, I'm a big Carson Kelly fan, and I wanted to get him before, um, you know, my compadres at 14 and 15 started dipping into the catcher pool as well. So with Carson Kelly, we put an upside of him. We put an upside on him in the forecaster of 30 home runs. Um, given that strong second half, he's got the prospect pedigree and he's the full-timer in Arizona. So um, that upside of 30 homers from the catcher spot is is great. The plate skills look good. And again, that prospect pedigree. So I think everything's in place for Carson Kelly to um, to be a really attractive option once that kind of top tier of catchers is off the board. Your Wilson Contreras, your Mitch Garver, Gary Sanchez types. I think Kelly can be just as good as those guys and go, um, you know, go five or six rounds later in drafts. 
I think it's also important to consider the position in the draft. You, you're drafting 13th, which is towards the tail end, which means you're closer to the turn. And uh, I think when you're closer to the turn, as uh, as a lot of us have figured out and probably most of our listeners will have realized as well, but it's worth talking about that when you're in the, in the turn positions down at the ends, you're much more vulnerable to a run. So if you had passed on Carson yep. Kelly, then all of a sudden Carson Kelly gets picked, you know, three picks after you or four picks after you. And then the next three good catchers all go in the next round before the the draft swings all the way back to you 25 or 26 picks later. Sometimes you just have to reach because if, if you don't reach, you're so vulnerable. You put yourself in such a vulnerable position to getting a run started that you're not part of. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the big, for me, the big downsides of drafting near the wheel is those runs and not catchers specifically, but also closers. I mean, I've gotten burned so many times, um, you know, not taking a closer. Oh, I can wait two more rounds and, and get somebody. And then, you know, eight or 10 closers go off the board in the next 28 picks while I'm just sitting there and, and crying in front of my screen. So, um, yes, that is a very good point. You do not want to get caught. Um, it, behind those runs and then you balance that with you know not reaching for somebody too early it's uh it's a tricky game and that's what makes it fun a wise man once told me when you're in these snake drafts if you're at the turn he said always be the guy who starts the run don't be the guy who ends it yeah then you get to pick your your favorite choice of that glob of guys in the run so that is that is wise advice it's uh, very entertaining to watch. You can find it on YouTube. You can link to it through uh, BaseballHQ.com. Uh, I recommend it. It's a great watch. It's a lot of fun. Uh, this has been terrific so far, Ryan. I need to take a break here talk about Baseball HQ for our listeners. Uh, we'll come back in a couple of minutes, and we'll talk about uh, the Speculator column. Sounds great. Ryan Bloomfield is the Speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Right now, it's time for me to bring you up to date on why I like to call BaseballHQ.com the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Rotisserie Gaming, Code General Manager Ray Murphy has the 2020 Straight Draft Guide, the cheat sheet to end all cheat sheets. And it comes out just as my last snake draft enters the 34th round. Thanks, guys. In scouting, analyst Rob Gordon, another longtime star here at Baseball HQ Radio, posts his 2020 minor league grids, an essential tool for anyone playing in leagues where prospects matter for this season and beyond. And in playing time tomorrow, analyst Matt Dodge looks at the American League Central, including closer changes in Kansas City, injuries in the Cleveland rotation, and the catching situation in Detroit. And those are just three articles among dozens. I've told you all about these things before. Facts and flukes, playing time today, playing time tomorrow, all those buyer's guides, fantasy market analysis, injury analysis, and the tools. Player forecast updated every day, daily dashboards, pitcher matchup planners, leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Listen, you add it all up, what you're getting is two things. Great expert content and analysis, and tools you can use to make your teams better, win your leagues, make some money, get a trophy, maybe a yoo shower. What more do you want? Well, what more could you want? A special HQ Radio offer. Use the promo code PATRICK at checkout, get a 10% discount on a site subscription and anything you'll buy in the way of a forecaster annual, minor league baseball analyst annual, 10% off subscriptions and books with the promo code PATRICK at checkout. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. 
Time now for part two of our feature expert interview. It's my pleasure once more to be joined by Ryan Bloomfield, the speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Ryan, welcome back. Good to be back. Glad, uh, nice, nice promo segment there. Got to pay the bills. That's right, yeah. Uh, Ryan, for the last couple of years, you've been writing the regular speculator column at Baseball HQ. Of course, that was Ray Murphy's baby for a long time. When did you take over as speculator-in-chief at BaseballHQ.com? <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a prestigious title. I, I like that one. I'll have to use that. Um, yeah, this is my third year taking over the speculator column from Ray. Um, I remember when he emailed me and offered it to me. I was absolutely thrilled to to take it, and then nervous not to mess up his uh, his prized possession, his baby. So kind of kind of went with a you know if it if it ain't broke, don't fix it approach for year one, and I'm mixing in more and more of my own ideas starting last year and, and led, leading into this year. So, you know, more just different types of analysis, pitch mix stuff, recency bias, that sort of thing. And it's been a lot of fun. It's um, It kind of takes you outside your comfort zone of the, of the normal player analysis. And um, I try and kind of look at players in ways that I don't normally do so, um, just to open the, the reader's eyes to different possibilities in the speculator. We talk about your column and the analysis often here at Baseball HQ Radio, but for those who are unfamiliar, what's the gist of the column? Yeah, so basically it's, you know, with the speculator, I think of it more as like a range of outcome type approach with these players. You know, we get we get so bogged down, especially now in draft season, of looking at a player and looking at their projection from your favorite site, be it HQ or, or whatever projection engine, and you think that's the, you know, that's the expectation for that player. Well, that may be like the 50th percentile outcome, but there's a whole range of outcomes for all of these players. And what I try and do in the speculator is just expose, you know, the extreme ends of those outcomes. What if everything goes right for this player? What if everything goes wrong for this player? And we, we've got a disclaimer in, in at the end of each speculator column that, you know, what what we're talking about are probably like 20% odds, you know, maybe a little bit higher, but um, these are things that, you know, if everything breaks or doesn't break, these are things that could happen. So I just try and open the reader's eyes to those types of things that, you know, when you when you get into this level of player analysis, you get so honed in on like a flat projection that uh, I think we lose sight of, of the best case and the worst case opportunities. And that's what the speculator tries to capture um, each week. In a recent uh, pair of speculator columns, you looked at players who had poor seasons in 2019. Then you explained how canny fantasy owners could exploit recency bias to find some bargains. Before we talk about players in particular, what's the essence of recency bias? Yeah, recency bias is, is rampant throughout our industry. Essentially, it's recency bias is placing too much emphasis on recent events. Um, just in general. And the way I see recency bias being applied in the fantasy industry is just focusing on, you know, our most recent season, 2019. Uh, there's an all, a lot of great analysis out there. And so much of it, though, focuses just on last year. I think we need to take a bigger picture of a player and look at someone who was down last year. Why, you know, why did they have a bad year? And what are their chances of bouncing back? So this, you know, this column was actually born out of an old Ron Chandler um concept and pd you probably remember this extreme regression drafting where ron would basically draft a team based on their prior year adp and focus on those guys who are way down compared to current year adp and, and had some success with it 
the idea of recency bias was one of the things we talked about at First Pitch Arizona. We had a panel last year about cognitive biases of one kind or another. And recency bias is really powerful because you tend to concentrate most on the things you remember best, which is the thing that happened the most recently. How can owners take advantage of the error? Yeah, I, I think they can take advantage of it just by focusing on a player's overall profile. I mean, a, 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 an entire season sounds like a huge sample, but it's really not, especially if, you know, a player is playing hurt or, you know, is in and out of playing time. Like, that can have an effect on on their psyche and obviously their, their results. So to take advantage of it, and I did this in the column, actually, for <clears throat> when I was writing out some of these recency bias guys, we have our kind of table of stats and skills for each player, and I crossed out 2019. And I basically just looked at each player's, you know, profile from 2016 to 2018 and, and looked at them that way and basically ignored 2019 um, to, to look at those bounce back guys. And doing that can actually identify guys who uh, probably had uh, unusually high years in 2019 and be, be overdrafted and not just underdrafted. Yeah. So uh, sometimes bias against a player's bad year is justified, of course, by skills and other things. How did you get to the other part of the equation, namely that A, that there was this poor season, but B, that there is a possibility of bounce back? Right. And it's a great point, PD. Like you can't, and I wouldn't recommend just blindly targeting guys who sucked last year. Like a lot of times there is a, you know, a good reason someone's, you know, in their mid thirties and and this is the twilight of their career. So I think you do need to look at each player case by case. So um, a lot of the guys that I looked at in this column were, you know, either playing through an injury were a new team in a new city. I kind of I hit on that a little bit earlier with Real Muto and his bad first half in, in Philadelphia. Those kinds of things where you can look at uh, factors outside of just their skill set, um, that's what I use to, to at least hone in on some of the bounce-back guys as opposed to just blindly targeting everyone who had a bad year because that, uh, that might not work out too well. Maybe we can dig into some detail. We'll get an idea how this works. One of the hitters you included in the column was Red Sox outfielder Andrew Benintendi. Obviously, he had a poor year, obviously, because he was on my Tout American League roster in 2019. What makes you think there's a big bounce back coming in particular with Andrew Benintendi? <laughs> yeah, so you might not want to hear this. You might want to <laughs> close, turn off your phone for a minute. But uh, but yeah, Benintendi came into last year. And this is more of like a change in approach thing. Benintendi came into last year up 15 pounds, wanted to focus on home runs just because everyone does. And he basically sold out his contact rate, hit way too many fly balls, and batting average tanked down to 266, um, had one of the biggest drops in contact rate of any hitter. And really, you know, he did hit more fly balls, but had just an 8% homer to fly. So what that means is a lot of those fly balls were just cans of corn into outfielders' gloves. Um, so he essentially tried to be somebody who he's not and early reports out of spring this year is he is now down those 15 pounds um i don't you know put too much stock into that but it is worth noting that he also wants to return to that pre-2019 general hitting approach so and this is a guy who was successful with that pre-2019 hitting approach i mean he was going and again you don't want to hear this but he was going like 30th overall in drafts last season um and for a good reason i mean the the 2018 line was excellent 16 homers 
uh, 21 steals and hit 290. So if he returns to that approach, and that's something that he's done before, we're not just speculating on something Benintendi has never done before, um, but knowing that last year was a failed experiment, uh, Benintendi could really rebound. He's got that elite prospect pedigree. He was a top three prospect for us, I believe, in 2018-2017, HQ100. Again, a second or third round of this time last year, and Benintendi's going in the ninth round this year. Market has pretty much buried him based on last year, and I think uh, I think that's a mistake. I, I, I really like where Benintendi's going in drafts um, as a rebound target. And in this respect, uh, Ryan, it strikes me that putting a bet on Andrew Benintendi is not just a matter of expecting a bounce back. It's the expectation of the bounce back is is really not being efficiently priced into the market cost as far as the market is concerned. And so you look at Benintendi in the ninth round, at that point, you're really at his floor. If he repeats last year, you're pretty much getting value in the ninth round or the tenth round or whatever. But the potential is there for a, for a big increase, and that's where the value really lies, I think. Exactly. Oh, you totally nailed that. And I, I used the ADP, I used the market price to really guide my outlook for that player. And like you said, yeah, Benintendi really all he has to do is repeat a down year of last year. And that's probably like a you know 20th, 30th percentile outcome for him. Um, if he has any kind of return to that pre-2019 approach, um, that's kind of automatic profit. And, you know, hitting at the top of Boston's lineup, I don't have Mookie Betts anymore, but that's still a pretty decent lineup. He's going to rack up plate appearances. Like, yeah, it's all based on the market and, and where somebody is going and what their price is. And, and that guides what my outlook for a, a particular guy. That has a heavy influence on it. If anything, Jonathan Scope might be even a better example. Uh, this is a guy that you pointed out is not so much speculating as simple observation. He's just going way too low by ADPs. What did you mean by that? Yeah, Scope's really confusing to me. So I know that he signed with Minnesota last year and the market, you know, ate that up. Great lineup, you know, whatever. Uh, Jonathan Scope had an ADP of 180 last season, Okay. Um, he actually earned more in 5 by 5 value last year than he did in 2018. So you would think he had a 180 ADP. He did better than he did the year before. You would think that ADP would go up, so it would be earlier than 180. His ADP, Scope's ADP, has dropped to over 340. So it's down like 160 picks from last year. Um, yes, he is no longer in Minnesota. He's in Detroit. So that lineup isn't great. On the flip side of that, because their lineup isn't that great, Jonathan Scope's going to play every single day. And we're projecting a $12 value for Scope in, in 5x5, 15-team mixed leagues. Even if he doesn't hit that projection, a 340 ADP, like that is that is automatic profit. And and when I mean by, you know, not really much of a speculation, like I'm not really that high on Jonathan Scope. Like I don't think he's going to touch um, his 2018 breakout or 2017, I believe the breakout was. I don't think he's, that's the player he is. But even if he's just okay, um, that is excellent profit. And I actually, in my labor mix draft, I didn't take a second baseman until the 19th round. And Jonathan Scope was my pick um, just because, you know, he, he doesn't even have to hit his projection to hit, to, to hit profit there. 
I checked the uh, ADPs from March 1st in NFBC drafts. He's actually climbed up a bit to the 300 mark, but still uh, the 300 in a 15-team league is the end of the 20th round. And uh, in my most recent draft, he went in the 22nd round. It just seems ridiculous. I was going to grab myself two picks later, but I got sniped. But uh, yeah, th- these are those kinds of situations that you talk about where this isn't really speculating on a huge on a huge breakout or a huge return to form. This is just a, a case of looking at the market and going, you know what, this is just wrong. Exactly. Um, and Scoop is, I think, the, the, the prime, or Scoop's prime, the prime example of that um, this year. Another hitter that you mentioned was Travis Shaw, now in Toronto. Uh, what made you focus on his terrible year as right for a bounce back? Yeah, uh, he really burned a lot of owners last year. Travis Shaw did. Um, just never got it going, go, coming off of two really good years in a row. He got hit, got hurt early. I believe it was a wrist injury, and then uh, sent to the minors and really just never got back on track in, in Milwaukee. This offseason, I think after he signed with Toronto, right around when he signed with Toronto, Shaw admitted to, to trying a new swing, and, and that experiment failed, obviously, last year so similar to like a benintendi tried something new and it didn't work out like you know that happens um so i you know i'm I'm not saying travis shaw is a sure thing to get back to where he was um but travis shaw did have two years in a row in 2017 2018 of, of 30 plus homers and five plus steals he's only 30 years old and his adp is you know scope level at 345 so it's kind of like you know why not pay for you know, the potential of a bounce back with Travis Shaw, similar to Ben Benintendi, he's proven that he can produce at the major league level. He's young enough to bounce back and the price is just dirt cheap where, you know, if it doesn't work out at that low, at that low price, you can cut him and move on and, and churn the, the free agent pool. So Travis Shaw, again, I'm not planning on a bounce back, but going back to that speculator thing, like that, you know, a full bounce back to 2017-2018 production is within is, you know, probably a 20% chance that that happens in that range of outcomes. So, um, so why not take a shot that late in the draft? So far this spring, Travis Shaw's bounce back has been of the dead cat variety. Uh, I checked through Sunday. He had a couple of dingers, one double, nifty slugging percentage over 500, but he's striking out like someone told him in, he's in a race with uh, Rugnet Odor and his batting average is under the Mendoza line. Even if it's just spring training, how does having some 2020 track record uh, so far affect your analysis of Travis Shaw, if at all? Yeah, it, it kind of puts a little bit of cold water on the on the Shaw speculation. But honestly, like I, I think it's been twenty six at bats, something on uh, less than thirty at bats. So I'm not really putting any stock in, especially for hitters for their spring training stats. It, it's just it, it's not much of a consideration for me unless it costs Travis Shaw a job. That's really what I'm looking at, but. I don't think it's going to, um, and PD, you probably better better talk to that than, than I can, but I, th- I think he's going to have at least a regular role in Toronto. I don't think spring training is going to do anything to change that. And, uh, yeah, the sample is just so small. I mean, I, I always go back to the research that you did on, I believe it was Derek Jeter's batting average example and how that, you know, Derek Jeter, one of the one of the top batting average guys, even his, you know, batting average over a over a long sample fluctuates wildly. His spring training is even more extreme. So I'm not putting too much stock into uh, Travis Shaw or any hitters early uh, early production. 
As far as his playing time in Toronto goes, I think a lot is going to depend on uh, how Vladdy Guerrero looks defensively because last year he was brutal. I, I think he might have been the worst third baseman by many of the fielding metrics in all of baseball because he's so heavy and clumsy on his feet that he made a lot of errors and he wasn't reaching balls and so forth. And I think there's only so much that the Blue Jays can accept of that kind of thing before they either make him a full-time DH or move him over to first base or do something which would give Shaw an easy pathway to playing time assuming he's hitting at all but on the flip side of that they've got Rowdy Tellez having a good spring and he's kind of being mentioned now as a guy who could break camp with the Blue Jays so I think the Travis Shaw situation is still up for grabs of all the hitters you investigated in this column Ryan who's your favorite to really have a year in 2020 who's the guy you personally are targeting yeah, so I think I, I think I think I hit on like ten guys in this in this column, and the one who was the first one that I actually wrote down uh, was Chris Davis of Oakland. Chris Davis with a K. This is a guy who had forty plus home runs, so forty two homers in twenty sixteen, forty three in twenty seventeen, and forty eight in twenty eighteen. Um, hurt his hip um, on Cinco de Mayo last year. Ran into a. Um, Ran into a wall, a center of fence, chasing a fly ball, and was never the same after that. And I just think the market has totally given up on Chris Davis. He's going in like the 12th or 13th round of 15-team leagues because of one bad season when he's young enough, again, to turn that around. And with the hip injury behind him, I don't see any reason why Chris Davis can't snap back to being, you know, one of the game's best power hitters. So, um Chris Davis is the one for me who, if you're planning on a bounce back, that's the first guy that I'm going to. The price is the price is great, and the track record is absolutely there. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Baseball HQ speculator columnist Ryan Bloomfield. And Ryan, you followed your bounce back column on speculative hitters with a column on speculative pitchers, looking at that same idea of recency bias and bounce back. Uh, what are the challenges in analyzing pitchers that separates them from analyzing hitters? Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing with pitchers, they're just so much more volatile than your hitters, especially when the pitchers start to get into their 30s. There's a very real chance that once they start to tank, once the skills and velocity start to go, they can instantly lose it and essentially go away. Like, I mean, I always think of like Felix Hernandez, who's, you know, in his early 30s, and he's having a decent camp in Atlanta, but, you know, one of the pristine aces forever, and pretty much one year, and he's gone. So um, that's the big challenge with pitchers, is there's a higher percentage outcome that they just don't bounce back, and they essentially wither away, to be rather morbid about it. In the American League, you cited Corey Kluber of Texas as a bounce-back candidate, with a lower price because of his 2019 uh, Asori campaign, we can all agree. Uh, what are you seeing in Corey Kluber that makes you uh, at least 20% optimistic? Yeah, I mean, just the, the big price drop with Kluber. And, and when I'm talking about bounce backs, you know, we're typically looking at like one year to the next. But Kluber's bad year was really just 35 innings. So, like, if you think about it, 35 innings ago, Corey Kluber was being drafted as a no doubt ace in the second round of 15 team leagues. Um, you know, the skills weren't there last year, but again, just 35 innings. The injuries, you know, Kluber broke his arm on a comebacker and then had an oblique injury during his rehab. So not arm related. Um, you know, there is some risk that, again, he's at that age where things could, could go downhill and not come back. But at like 150 overall, um, that's a fine price to take on somebody who could, you know, 
pretty much a snap back to where he was. The velocity looks pretty good this spring, and he's got elite secondary pitches. So I'm willing to um, to take that gamble on Corey Kluber at his price. That price is up to the 97th ADP since March 1st at NFBC. How do you oh, like him yeah. at uh, around 100? Yeah, he's starting to get pushed up, it sounds like, then. Um, at that point, I'm a little bit, you know, you, you're again, it's all opportunity costs. Who are you passing up at 100? And, you know, you're like your Jesus Lazardo, Max Fried types. Um, still, you know, I'm okay with that. But, yeah, not as not as juicy as it was early this draft season. Drafters must be reading my speculator column. Kluber's moved up to the point where he's now ahead of Frankie Montas, Mike Soroka, um, Chris Sale because of the injury, of course, and guys like that, Sonny Gray, uh, uh, Liam Hendricks, the, the closer in Oakland. There's There are choices in Corey Kluber's neighborhood that you might prefer much more than you would have if he was five rounds later, that's for sure. Uh, same question, how about the Yankees' Masahiro Tanaka? What are you, what are you seeing with Tanaka for a bounce back? Yeah, uh, Tanaka, for me, the big thing is the ball. Um, and, you know, the ball dominates, you know, the actual baseball dominates a lot of, or has dominated a lot of our, our off-season content. And Tanaka pretty much admitted to losing feel for his split-finger fastball, which was his out pitch, his primary go-to pitch. The splitter, you know, basically tanked last year. He had 23% swinging strike rate on that pitch in 2018, that you know, totally dropped to 11% last year. And Tanaka blamed it on the seams of the baseball. And if you read some of the early comments on uh, this spring, Zach Eflin, uh, his comments come to mind. And I, I dive into this a little bit more in this week's speculator column. He just says the ball feels so much better than it did last year. It's not a cue ball anymore. Will the spring training ball morph into the regular season ball? I don't think that's a given. But if that grip is better on the 2020 baseball. Masahiro Tanaka is a fine choice to regain effectiveness of that splitter and bounce back. So uh, that's my, my my main argument for Tanaka bouncing back. He's got that track record and coming off an awful year and, and being drafted pretty cheap. Moving over to the National League, you mentioned Mets reliever Edwin Diaz, whose ADP really fell after his bad year in 2019. But what about the concerns here? They've, the Mets have options. Uh, we talked about uh, also the saves are just dependent on manager whim. Uh, if, if Edwin Diaz struggles early especially, they've got these other choices that they can put in there instead. How much of that concern needs to be filtered into your uh, analysis of where he ought to be going? Yeah, I, I honestly not too much. I think you know we've got Edwin Diaz at HQ projected for uh, just fifty five percent of the Mets save total. I would I would definitely take the over on that. I just think he's going to start the year in the with the role and the skills in twenty nineteen were almost a carbon copy of um, of twenty eighteen, save for a few more walks. But Edwin Diaz had a twenty seven percent homer to fly ball rate last year. The league average is like 15, even with the ball, and 27%. I mean, that just does not get repeated. I don't care who you are. Um, Edwin Diaz, before that, had a 14% and 11% homer to fly ball rate the two seasons prior. So I just think from a gopheritis standpoint, Edwin Diaz is going to be fine. The Ks are still there. The whiffs are still there. The velocity is still there. Even our control sub-indicators are still there. I think... um, I think he's going to be fine. I think he's going to take the role and, and run with it. The only problem with Diaz is the market thinks so as well. I mean, he's basically being drafted in that, you know, kind of top tier of closers um, after like the Hater and Yates. He's in that glob. So you're not getting too much of a bounce back discount, but um, 
I'm I'm feeling pretty good about Eddie D and and his bounce back potential. The the skills are still there for sure. Chris Archer, I was really surprised by that. I thought at this <laughs> point everybody's given up on Chris Archer, but you're standing firm in the face of the uh, market. What what gives you cause to have any kind of faith in Chris Archer at this point? Yeah, I've been burned by Chris Archer about eight times throughout my uh, career. I, I I think he's only pitched six seasons. But <laughs> the big thing with Chris Archer, again, price is everything. I mean, the market has totally given up on Chris Archer. He is going extremely late in drafts. You know, Archer was traditionally one of those kind of being drafted as a as an A slash SP two. Um, Chris Archer ditched his awful two-seam fastball in the second half last year and the skills were really really good actually behind um you know underneath some some somewhat shaky results so then you know there's a new pitching coach in pittsburgh there's been i don't know if you read tyler glasnow's comments on the previous regime in pittsburgh and their approach to pitching glasnow was was not impressed with that and i think with you know with 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 a new new ideas in pittsburgh Archer ditch changing his pitch mix and, and having some success with that in the second half of last year. I think he's at least worth a shot. Um, I, I'm very forgiving in my heart and, and when we'll take Chris Archer late in drafts. But uh, uh, again, he's going at a price where if it doesn't work out, you can cut bait early and, and move on to somewhere else where in previous years you were taking him early and, and could not do that. It wasn't that long ago, Ryan, that Craig Kimbrell was one of the top closer choices that you could make. Uh, he struggled uh, with injuries uh, the last couple of years. Last year, he kind of cratered a bit. Uh, most analysts have him as an extremely high-risk choice because of how he looked in 2019. But again, you have seen some signs of optimism. What are those? Well, it's it's really just the track record. And yeah, like, yeah, there is a lot of risk with Craig Kimball. I'm not going to deny that. Um, there's definitely a, a, a decent chance he he continues to struggle and even gets booted from, from the Cubs closer role. You know, a 462 expected ERA last year, That that's not good. However, if you look at it with some context, he only pitched 21 innings last year. He didn't really get going, he didn't sign until June and didn't even start pitching until late June with Chicago. So he never really got into that, that groove and had a couple bad outings to start. Again, I talk about a new city, a lot of pressure in that city being the closer. Uh, just a lot of things going against Craig Kimbrell last year. Before that, um, you know, the velocity's elite, the swing strike rate's elite. I mean, Craig Kimbrell, I don't need to go into the, the details, but, you know, he's been one of the best closers in you know the past five six years he's only had one before last year he's only had one er season with an era above three in his eight-year career so um the track record speaks speaks for itself and if you give him a pass for kind of an abbreviated season last year where he just couldn't get going i think there is uh, you know there's definitely a chance where he can he can be dominant again Something else I like about Kimbrell, just as a role consideration, is behind him in that Cubs bullpen, you don't see a lot of names that make you go, wow, there's a closer in waiting. Wow, look at that guy. You know, Wick, Morrow, Tapera, uh, Jeffress used to be wow, but not so much anymore. I, I don't know. I think, if if anything, Kimbrell's position in Chicago looks more solid this year than it does last year, just because there doesn't seem to be anybody waiting in the wings. Absolutely. And that, that's definitely, I think, the leash with Kimbrell and, you know, for right or wrong reason, the contract as well. But yeah, the lack of competition in that pen. I mean, he's he's as firmly dug into that closer role as, as any other closer is on any other team. And that's important. 
you, you want to keep those guys. I mentioned that 33%, uh, that one in three chance that a closer stays in that role from beginning of the year to the end of the year. Um, Kimbrell's got a leg up, a big leg up on, on that number so far. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Ryan Bloomfield, speculator columns to BaseballHQ.com. And Ryan, earlier in the draft season, you had a speculator column about how owners can avoid this year's Nick Pavetta. Before we get into the analysis of what sort of player is 2019 Pavetta supposed to be an example? Yeah, so Pavetta, I was burned by Pavetta last year. Basically, I think of a, of a, of a quote-unquote Nick Pavetta as someone who doesn't really have the track record, had bad results last year, but the skills were there. A lot of a lot of HQ subscribers might call this avoiding Ricky Nolasco, somebody who just forever had, had, had enticing skills but just never put it together um, on the field, and, and you got burned because of it multiple years. Chris Archer, who we just talked about, is another example of that. You point out in the column that Pavetta was being spoken of in tandem with a, another young pitcher who had great potential, Shane Bieber, but everything worked out fine for Shane Bieber and not for Pavetta. What are the key factors separating Bieber's success from Pavetta's big flop? Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up because I, I really wanted to make a point in that column of, yes, uh, Shane Bieber and Nick Pavetta were basically being drafted side by side this time last year. Uh, very similar profiles, and obviously Bieber... You took off and is a second-round pick, and Pavetta is in the bullpen. Um, and that goes back to that speculator range of outcomes thing. You know, you've got two guys who are, you know, really people could not tell the difference between the two last year. And, uh, you know, Bieber hit his top end of range of outcomes, and Pavetta, you know, hit rock bottom. So things that that happened for Bieber that didn't for Pavetta, the, the, the bad fastball that Bieber throws got a little bit better, and um, his secondary pitches really thrived. Shane Bieber's did last year, and that took him to um, to a new level this season. So, um, again, though, it's it's just, you know, players might look very similar right now, but if, you know, we, we it's, it's tough to tell who's going to uh, – to surge and who's not. And if you get that right, that's going to be the difference between winning a league and not. Well, if you're looking at Shane Bieber and Pavetta as having a very similar skills profile and one guy gets Cy Young votes and the other guy is uh, out of the league, basically, (laughs) is that a cautionary note on Shane Bieber? I talked to Alex Chamberlain last week who does a lot of work about pitching and he chose Shane Bieber as his Bane pitcher for the American League because he said it's all smoke and mirrors, essentially, that the, there's not a lot of there there. And uh, and just as you said, Shane Bieber kind of hit his 90th percentile of potential outcomes, and you can't bet on that every year. Absolutely, and that's why I mentioned uh, taking pitchers early. I mentioned Bieber is one of those second-round starters uh, that I'm off of, and I'm glad to hear Alex is in agreement with that. Alex is a fantastic um, analyst and had a you know a great interview last week. But yes, you're basically paying for somebody who in Bieber had you know everything went right for him last year, and Bieber lives on you know command and and hitting edges. And when I hear that. I get a little bit worried. What if that command just ever so slightly uh, slips this year and he doesn't have that fastball to overpower hitters? I, I think I think Bieber's being drafted at his, you know, if everything goes right price. A uh, lot of floor, not so much ceiling. Yeah, uh, uh, the... 
other thing I worry about with guys who nibble is umpires and strike zone. Uh, I wonder if, you know, in the off season, if they've been using some of the data that they get to teach the umpires, you know, you're consistently calling this ball that's three inches outside, you're calling it a strike, you need to bear down on that, or, you know, the high pitch, the low pitch, whatever it is that Bieber's doing to nibble at the edges, if he loses even a tiny fraction of that, all of a sudden his walks go up, his strikeouts go down, everything's everything's bad. Uh, you had some well-hyped candidates for this year's Pavetta in the American league you mentioned Tyler Glasnow of Tampa he's another big favorite of a lot of touts what is everybody missing do you think on Glasnow that makes him more risky than we might be being led to believe right so yeah the case you know and I haven't I really haven't heard too many bad things be said about Tyler Glasnow this draft season to your point they really the case against Glasnow for me is, is two things and this these are things that went bad with Pavetta one is just the workload I mean Glasnow has you know, I believe his career high um, of innings is something like 120, and he's being drafted in the fifth round where you really need to get that volume for um, for your pitchers. So, Glass now, I, I just think the injury risk is really high, and that's being that's being neglected in early drafts. I don't think, and even if he stays healthy, um, Glass now, you know, what's he going to look like in the second half when he is in uncharted territory in terms of workload, when he has exceeded 120 innings, best case, you know, is that going to fade a little bit given his, given Glass now's um, history of, of arm issues? And then the second thing with Glass now is just the pitch mix. He really just thrives on two pitches. And I know he's working on some, you know, third pitches in, in spring training this year. We have no idea how effective those will be in the regular season, but, uh, there aren't too many pitchers outside of, you know, Randy Johnson and a couple others who consistently dominate with just two pitches. And I think a third pitch, along with that injury risk for Glass now, um, enters a lot of risk into his profile. And he's he's being drafted like 70th overall, and that's really expensive for somebody without that track record. Another top young starter with a very limited track record is Oakland's Frankie Montas, again being drafted relatively high. What is there besides just plain rawness that should make us cautious on Frankie Montas? Yeah, uh, rawness, and really, uh, again, we talked about this before, but just the price. I mean, he's he's being drafted almost around top 100. You mentioned him going ahead of like a Corey Kluber. Um, sure, I believe in some of the games from Montas last year, like he introduced that split finger and, um, you know, the skills really did take off a 354 XCRA last year. I mean, that, that's pretty good, but you're taking a guy who's never thrown a hundred innings in the major leagues and drafting him as basically your second starter. Um, I think that's, you know, extremely risky. So sure, Montas could you know, there is a, a range of outcomes where he does beat that price. Like I get the, the actual skills and stuff with, with Montas, but I just worry about the workload um, and really just the 96 innings last year, which is his career high. Are we really going to draft somebody that early based off of a sub 100, 100 inning sample? Now, if Montas was going like 150, 160 in drafts, sure, I love that. Um, but, but the price is just a little bit too high for me. Two more rising young stars among your possible Pavettas in the National League, uh, starting with Zach Gallen of Arizona, another guy that the touts love. He's been uh, rising in ADPs. Everybody loves Zach Gallen, but what is it about his profile that raises red flags for you? <laughs> it's really just being that country and really the speculator column for, for Zach Gallen is really just like a reality check, like slow down, people. <laughs> um, Zach Gallen, 
you know, has been walking on water throughout draft season. Everyone is on top of Zach Gallen. That started at first pitch Arizona last year, um, where I know, you know, Saris, you know, said he loves Zach Gallen. And there are reasons to really like Zach Gallen. I mean, elite sub indicators. Um, but just playing devil's advocate, like Zach Allen had 281 ERA last year, but a 409 expected ERA. So he had a very fortunate strand rate um, that drove that wedge between his results and his skills. Um, the control is a little bit shaky, a 4.1 walks per nine last year, a 39% ground ball rate. So people are, are elevating off of Zach Allen. Uh, most importantly, he's got just 80 career innings at the major league level. And you're taking somebody that high, again, similar to Montas, um, who just doesn't have the track record and is being drafted as an SP2. So, yeah, things could all go Gallon's way and he could break out. Like, I'm certainly cognizant of that. But he's kind of that, that everyone's favorite sleeper um, syndrome that, that was Pavetta this time last year, and Gallon's price just keeps getting pushed up. So as people listen to podcasts and read analysis on how great Zach Allen is, and he is a good pitcher, um, that, that is getting a little bit pricey. Also, a sort of cautionary note about batted ball profile. You mentioned a 39% ground ball rate. A lot of line drives, too, 24%, which is above league average. Uh, you know, we'd, we'd think that a guy with a very low ground ball rate would mean a very high fly ball rate, but it isn't really. It's about the same as his ground ball rate. The issue for me is he's giving up a lot of line drives, and uh, his batting average on balls in play, his hit rate, does not reflect that particular fact. So if that all normals out, I think that there's a, a problem facing uh, Zach Gallen, especially his owners. Uh, Denilson Lamette, another guy that uh, the touts love, another guy that... You you're cautious about why is that? Uh, similar to Glass now, pretty much like a, a you know a two pitch guy. I mean he he he's got a great slider, but that's his primary pitch. So Lamette throws his slider almost half the time. He gets a 24 percent swing strike rate on the pitch. You know that's great. Um, but coming off Tommy John surgery, only 73 innings last year. You know what are the chances that Lamette? Um, fades in the second half, similar to what I was talking about with Glass now. So, you know, there's a chance that Lamette could go, like I call it, full Patrick Corbin and just leans into that slider, and it's so dominant and so good that even though hitters know it's coming, um, they still can't hit it. Like, that's possible. But more often than not, that's not the case. Lamette needs to develop a consistent third pitch to really get through an entire season and I just wonder, yeah, he might start out great, but I wonder without that workload and without that third pitch, how is he going to do when he's in that uncharted territory? I mean, Lamette's thrown 180 innings the last three years combined, and that worries me, um, again, at his price. If he was going as like a you know, fourth or fifth starter, absolutely, I would you know, take a stab at him because that upside is real, but you're paying for a lot of that upside um, at his current ADP. And I couldn't help noticing you had uh, Herman Marquez was one of your cautionary pivettas, only to turn up a few weeks later as a bounce-back guy in the recency bias column. So how can he be both a possible pivetta and a bounce-back guy? Is this the, the uh, joy of being the speculator writer? It is, man. I can't, I can't go wrong if I say Herman Marquez is going to be great and he's going to be bad. I can, I can cherry-pick the one that is right at the end of the year. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it was a little bit interesting to put Marquez in kind of both, but it goes back to that, you know, the essence of the speculator. And essentially, I want to present the case for and against a certain pitcher and let the reader decide. So 
yes, Germán Marquez, in his range of outcomes, he could he could be that 2018 version of himself that was dominant and quote unquote tamed Coors Field. There was also a reasonable case that the version that we saw last year could stick. Um, and what I really want to do with these speculator columns is, again, just open the, the, the possibility of, of either one of those happening and ultimately present the facts for each side and let the reader decide on, um, on what they want to do with someone like Herman Marquez. Ryan, terrific stuff. Uh, Going to take another quick break here. We'll get you back, talk about your bloom boards. Uh, we'll get your boons and banes uh, in just a minute. Hang on. All right, cool. Ryan Bloomfield is the speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com. We had a bit of a technical problem there towards the end of that segment. We'll get it all fixed up for our next segment. I also want to remind you of something that uh, Ryan Bloomfield is taking part in, and that's the First Pitch Online Forums. You get three one-hour interactive sessions, March 5th, 11th, and 17th. Of course, a couple of those have already occurred, but you can still watch them anytime you want on demand in these online sessions. And there's still one on Tuesday, March 17th that you can participate in live, get your questions in there, talk with Ron Chandler, Brent Hershey, Ray Murphy, Ryan Bloomfield, other Baseball HQ analysts. Ask some questions, find out stuff about the secrets in this year's pool, relievers who could be closing by June, some sluggers that we need to worry about if the ball loses its juice, some potential busts there in the ADP top 50, finding profit in muddy playing time situations, some new first-rounders for next year's draft, and a whole lot more. First Pitch Forums online. Check them out at BaseballHQ.com. It's 19 bucks. You get all three of the programs. You can watch them again and again and again. Hey, listen, instead of binge-watching The Outsider, not that good, Frank, if you take my word for it, you can uh, binge watch the First Pitch Forums online, get some good information as you get closer to draft. First Pitch Forums online. Check them out, BaseballHQ.com. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part three of our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure once more to be joined by Ryan Bloomfield, speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Ryan, welcome back. Hey, thanks to be back. Uh, good to be back for the home stretch here. Down the stretch they come. In addition to being the speculator yep. columnist at BaseballHQ.com, you're also the director of social media for the site. And uh, true to form, you have a terrific Twitter feed. I love your Twitter feed. It's got great information. And I really enjoy your Twitter series that you call Bloom Boards. What are Bloom Boards and where did that idea come from? Bloom Boards, uh, the concept has been there for a while and i'm a big data guy a numbers guy i like to look at stats and skills from a variety of sources and i, I really put together these kind of leaderboards of filters um, like skills filters so certain guys with above a certain strikeout rate above a certain ground ball rate and see who kind of bubbles up and i was doing that really just in prep for my speculator columns so i was trying to to to, to use that data to, to highlight guys, you know, for example, like the next Nick Pavetta or recency bias guys. Um, and so as I was writing these out and coming up with these filters, I was tweeting out, you know, just little bits here and there and getting really good feedback in. And that morphed into this thing that I call bloom boards. And I gave it a hashtag just so people can, um, can search for that and pull up everything. It's basically a picture of a leaderboard of usually like a list of eight to 10 players that meet some sort of criteria. And I, I, I try and combine different data sources. So I'll look at like our HQ skills. I'll maybe throw on some StatCast metrics. So look at like a barrel rate compared from StatCast compared to Homer to fly ball rate from Baseball HQ. 
You can also throw ADP on top of that to say, okay, of that mix, you know, which one is so these guys are going outside the top 200. So you can kind of get a, a list of end game guys. And it's been really fun. Like the, the, the feedback has been really positive. Um, I'm giving away a lot, but I, I really enjoy doing it. And um, I, I kind of look at it too as like the start and not the end of a look at a player. So if I throw up a list of like eight guys that have a great barrel rate going outside the top 200, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm in, I'm in on every single one of those guys. Um, but it is like, yo, I haven't really looked into three of these guys that bubble up on this list. Let me take a deeper look into those guys like a CJ Croner, Jonathan Scope we talked about. Um, earlier and, and kind of dive in and, and see if I'm really targeting one of those guys. So it's been a blast. I try and do uh, a bloom board every weekday, but um, as life happens, that gets tough. But, uh, but yeah, search for it on Twitter, hashtag bloom boards, and you'll find all kinds of stuff on there. In a bloom board about hitters with decent barrel rates but lowish uh, home run per fly ball that uh, you mentioned just a moment ago, one name that caught my eye was shortstop Dansby Swanson of Atlanta. I like Dansby Swanson this year, still don't have any shares. You said you don't have any Dansby Swansons on your team, but you finally did grab him in the great fantasy baseball invitational. 16th round could be a real nice get. What do you like about Dansby Swanson? Yeah, Dansby, I just like, I mean, I like that hard contact that was not reflected in the results last year. So I think there's some power upside that the market's not really capturing. In addition to that, um, Dansby can run a little bit. He can kind of do everything, hit for a little bit of average. And he's got that prospect pedigree. I mean, it's not too long ago that Dansby Swanson was the number one overall fantasy prospect on a lot of lists. So um, there is definitely a lot of post-hype appeal with Dansby Swanson and those, those hard hit skills that hard contact is starting to show through with some of his stat cast uh, uh stat data and yeah i did grab him in the 16th round of tgfbi and and was thrilled about that so glad i at least have one share of dansby swanson so far and in a bloom board about pitchers outside the top 100 with good command which you classified as a strikeout rate minus a walk rate greater than 16 percentage points but also with a high ground ball rate over 47 percent one of the pitchers uh, you mentioned was uh, Hyunjin Ryu. I grabbed him in one of my drafts. But the one that really intrigued me was Tyler Molle of Cincinnati as a potential late rounder. He's got the good command as you lo- as you identified, the ground ball tilt. Is there anything else that interests you about Tyler Molle? I mean, those are the for for old T Molly. That, that those are the things you want to target in the end game. If someone who can get strikeouts, limit walks, and keep the ball on the ground. I mean, you check all those boxes, and then on top of that, um, this Bloom board looked at guys outside the top 100. Tyler Molly's going like 350 right now in drafts. Now, a lot of the reason for that is Molly, I believe, is the sixth starter in Cincinnati, so he doesn't really have a spot in the rotation on opening day but as we notice um you know Stephen Nickran writes a column of this every year the six starter column there's a very good chance that one of those five starters is going to get hurt at some point early in the season so Tyler Molly is going at a price where you can kind of hold on to him for a little bit once he breaks into the rotation uh the skills are there for him to at least put up like you know mid-rotation production at an end game price and it's those kinds of hits that can really if you hit on a few of those that can really uh you know, help your team. Especially when the fifth starters Wade Miley. It's not like you're trying to get past Sandy Koufax. Yep. <laughs> no, Wade Miley, and that's probably the first time Wade Miley and Sandy Koufax have been in the same sentence. 
On the other hand, the Reds have some young arms in the minor leagues who might uh, get into the scrap a little later in the season. But when I was talking to Ron Chandler a couple of weeks ago, Ryan, one of the things he said in discussing his BAB system for uh, trying to figure out what players you need to be targeting is he's tired of hearing the, uh, the expression, this guy doesn't have a path to playing time. Uh, Ron says everybody has a path to playing time because everybody gets hurt. And unless you're 14th on the depth chart in the, uh, in the starting pitching situation in Cincinnati, maybe not. But if you're sixth on the depth chart, there's a f- above average chance you're going to get some starts. Yeah. And I wholeheartedly agree with Ron there, especially in the, 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 easiest places to target those types of guys is where there is multiple points of failure ahead of them. So your six starters, I mentioned, you know, the chance of one of five starters getting hurt is really good, but also like fourth outfielders. Those are guys who I'm all over because yes, they don't have a path, but a lot of those fourth outfielders, all they need is one out of three guys to get hurt. And chances are that's going to happen early in the season. So I agree. I'm I'm eliminating the words, no path to playing time because, uh, injuries they will start piling up here shortly and they already have yeah i've been taking long looks at sam hilliard the outfielder in colorado as a guy because all that's standing in front of him is david Dahl, and david Dahl's had injury problems his whole career so i think i think it's really a good idea for all fantasy owners to uh, to take a look at those kind of depth chart situations and don't rule out a guy just because he doesn't have a job on opening day there are pathways to playing time uh, Ryan, I've been asking our experts to talk about players they think will be boons and banes for the rest of the fantasy season. You can use any rationale you like. Uh, let's start with your boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners for 2020. Start in the American League. Who's a hitter who could be a boon? Well, given that we're in the American League Tout Wars together, um, should I be giving my, my boons and banes? I, I will. I'll, I'll do it for the people. Um, I'll, I'll say my AL Boone hitter, someone who I've been all over this draft season, is CJ Crone at first base in Detroit. He's, he has been a bloom board extraordinaire uh, this draft season as someone with an excellent barrel rate, elite hard contact, and a good strikeout rate. So he makes contact and he makes hard contact. Um, one of your, your hard contact index um, winners there, PD. So CJ Crone, the market's docking Crone for being in a bad Detroit lineup. But on the flip side of that, similar to Jonathan Scope, he's going to play every day. Comerica Park plays well to left field. First base is kind of down this year. So I think Crone is an excellent way to stock up up on power late in drafts been sniped twice on cj crone uh, in the national league who's a boon hitter and this time you can tell the truth yeah this yeah this time i can say what i really feel um <laughs> Avisail garcia uh in milwaukee um has been a part-time player with tampa the last few years the skills really jump off the page for me the sprint speed he's he's a fast hitter or a fast runner. He can hit for power. He's got decent contact skills. And most importantly, in Milwaukee, he's going to be an everyday outfielder for them. So it just came out that Ryan Braun is nursing a sore shoulder, and I don't think he's going to be playing the outfield. He's going to be splitting time at first base, which opens up that path for Avisail Garcia um, in the outfield. And Garcia is going at a very reasonable pro- reasonable price 15 16th round in in mixed league so he's someone who i'm aggressively targeting outside the top 200 big guy but he can really run you're right about that uh over to the mound an american league pitcher you think could be a boon yeah i'm digging digging kind of deep here but i'm gonna go uh matt shoemaker a home product 
of yours up in Toronto. I keep Matt Shoemaker was really good and has been really good when he is on the mound, especially recently. Um, tore his ACL um, in an unfortunate injury last year after putting up a 157 ERA in, in almost 30 innings with 14% swinging strike rate, 68% first pitch strike rate. Like that's that's elite level stuff. And um, we talked about kind of spring training stats and what we put into that earlier with Travis Shaw. Uh, with Matt Shoemaker, I am putting a good amount of stock into his spring training performance just to make sure he's healthy. And he's been really good. Um, that knee has been really strong. He's pitched six shutout innings uh, so far this spring with nine strikeouts and one walk. So, you, you, you know, take a stab at him. He's free in drafts, Matt Shoemaker. I had him last year in tout, and he was off to that great start, and then uh, they had Rowdy Tellez blundering around over at first base, and that's what that's how Matt Shoemaker got hurt. Uh, Tellez ran into him, and Tellez is a big uh, big customer, so you don't want to get run into by him under any circumstances. But, yeah, I, I, I was watching that game, and I thought, oh, boy. just a, And I had Tellez on my team, too, so I thought, well, what is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> Who's a National League pitcher who could be a boon, Ryan? Boone coming off a 7.13 ERA last year, so going pretty cheap in drafts is Mitch Keller, who is a really elite prospect for Pittsburgh. Um, yeah, had that 7-plus ERA, but we had him with a 3.98 expected ERA, so there was definitely some misfortune in those outcomes. Um, the other thing with Mitch Keller is the pitch mix. So he threw a kind of a mediocre fastball way too often last year. He threw his four-seam fastball 60% of the time. Behind that, he's got a slider that misses bats 21% of the time, which is really good, and a curveball with an above-average swinging strike rate and a 72% ground ball rate. So he's got those pieces with the secondary stuff, and Keller has said this spring that he does want to throw his fastball less. Um, It's easy to say that, but even just if he goes from 60% usage with the heater down to 45 or 50%, and if Keller focuses on that, that slider and curveball, again, with that new regime in Pittsburgh that I, I talked about earlier with Chris Archer, I think there's a lot of ingredients for a really good year out of Mitch Keller. And, uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm expecting big things from him and, and have him in many drafts as well. Yeah, you always like to hear a pitcher say, I have a bad pitch here or an ineffective pitch. I'm going to throw it less this year. Good good plan. Good uh, good coaching there. Uh, Ryan Bloomfield's Boons, C.J. Crone of Detroit. I have Sahil Garcia of Milwaukee, Matt Shoemaker in Toronto, Mitch Keller in Pittsburgh. Let's move over to the Baines now. Ryan, these are guys about whom you think listeners should be a little cautious. Uh, American League hitter who could be a Bane. Yeah, and this is all based on the price. So this is all market. Um, the big bane for me in the American League is Glaber Torres, who's going uh, like 30th overall, coming off a, a pretty good year, 38 home runs, um, and a 278 batting average in an age 22 season. Like, yeah, I get you know I get the hype. But our skills kind of paint that as a best-case outcome again for this year. Um, our expected home runs in the forecaster was was super low, and the price is just so high that even if Glaber Torres repeats what he did last year, he's only breaking even. So I think if you're paying for Glaber Torres uh, around 30th overall, there's not much room for him to grow at that point. And again, that sounds weird saying with with somebody so young and with his prospect pedigree, but the skills aren't quite there yet. I would I'd be much more comfortable with Glaber Torres at 50 or 60 overall but I'm not going to get him there in in really any draft. And we should throw in a cautionary note at 
first and second round guys, you're very unlikely to get a profit anyway, but you do want to be sure to at least get par value. And uh, Glaber Torres seems to have a lot more floor than he has ceiling. I agree with you entirely. Uh, how about a National League hitter who could be a bane? Yeah, you kind of asked about him before in the labor draft, but Fernando Tatis is my my bane. Again, legit number one overall upside, but there are a number of qualities from Tatis that you don't want in a first or second rounder, and that's where you're going to have to take him. Really, he's starting to creep into the first round. Um, averaging 87 games played over the last two seasons, I talked about that earlier. The plate skills really weren't there for Tatis last year, 67% contact rate and like a 410 BABIP. So, yeah, that 317 batting average that Tatis had last year, I think is going to come, you know, maybe 270, 280. I think that's in play. And then really how many home runs can Fernando Tatis hit with a 31% fly ball rate? He had a he had a 32% homer to fly last year. So just everything really went right with Tatis last year until he got hurt, obviously. But I think the market is almost expecting that to carry over into the, into this season for the entire year, given his price. And I think that's, um, you know, a low percentage chance that that happens. Yeah, when I look at Tatis, uh, I agree with you. I think the problem here is is just playing time risk. In his four professional baseball seasons, he's only been over 500 plate appearances once, and that was in 2017 between uh, high and double A. And other than that, it's been 400, 357, you know, like that. And boy, oh boy, you know, if you're spending a first round pick, you want 600 plate appearances, not 300. That's for sure. Uh, who, exactly. Yep. On the pitching side, who could be a Bane American League pitcher for you? <laughs> for I already kind of touched on this guy, Tyler Glass. Now he's my Bane in the American League. So I um, won't go into too much repeating of myself there. I just think the, the price is really high and it's going to be interesting. I mean, to uh, look, look ahead a little bit to our AL Tout Wars auction, you know, there are so many starting pitchers this year have gotten hurt. Verlander, Snell, Chris Sale, uh, Severino, James Paxton. You know, one common theme among all those starting pitchers that are getting hurt, they're all in the American League. So is Tyler Glasnow's price going to go even higher in American League Towers just because, you know, that that tier of, of aces is withering away. So I think it's going to go up even higher, and I'm, I'm not in on Glasnow at that price. Yeah, it's like uh, Garrett Cole's pretty much the last guy left standing uh, in the American League, and then you start yep. reaching. And uh, Bain, National League pitcher. Bain, National League pitcher, I had this guy on my next uh, Nick Pavetta column, and for me that's Brandon Woodruff of Milwaukee. I think there are some major workload concerns, and again, that's a common theme of guys I'm you know, avoiding early in drafts or even in the early to mid-rounds. You know, Woodruff has some injury history, not really arm-related, but, um, you know, doesn't have that track record of being to, you know, being effective once he's surpassed 100 innings. So what's, what's Brandon Woodruff going to look like in the second half? Um, he's very fastball-centric, so his fastball is really good. Woodruff's fastball, he's got two uh, really good fastballs, actually, that get a lot of whiffs. But he doesn't really have a go-to secondary pitch that's an out pitch. So if that fastball effectiveness uh, wanes at all, Brandon Woodruff could be in trouble as there's not really a, a backup option for him there. And again, going in the fifth or sixth round in 15-team leagues, I want to see a, a little bit more of a track record there before I'm, I'm in on, on Brandon Woodruff. So uh, he's my bane at, at, at that price. As Shakespeare said, if the fast, if the fast ball doth wane, he could be a bane. 
uh, Ryan Bloomfield's Baines, Glaber Torres of the Yankees, Fernando Tatis Jr. of San Diego, Tyler Glasnow of Tampa, Brandon Woodruff of Milwaukee. Uh, Ryan, tell our listeners where they can keep up with you, especially those bloom boards. <laughs> yeah, I love that Shakespeare quote, first off. I, I didn't pay much attention in high school, but I think he did say that. So um, You can find me on uh, Twitter at RyanBHQ. And again, if you're looking for just some leaderboards and guys you want to target real quick, just search hashtag Bloomboards um, on Twitter and all that stuff will come up. You can find me on this site every Wednesdays when the speculator column hits. And I'm also doing some first pitch online stuff. So we've done uh, the first of our three online sessions. And this is a, a Tuesday Tout edition. So our second session will be tomorrow night, Wednesday night. And then the, the final online session will be next week. So check us out there. Check me out on social media and on the site as well. And as a reminder, if you don't get to watch those uh, First Pitch online sessions live, which you can participate in by asking questions and stuff, but you can also look at them later on demand when the time more suits you. It's a terrific series. Uh, Ryan, also a terrific session with you here on Baseball HQ Radio. I do appreciate it. Thank you very much, and I'll see you in New York City in a week. All right. Yeah, PD, see you this weekend. Ryan Bloomfield is the speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 10th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 11 of the 2020 Fantasy Baseball season. Of course, I want to thank our guest for this Tuesday Tout Edition, Ryan Bloomfield, the speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Ryan's a really successful fantasy baseball player, frankly the last thing I need in my Tout American League draft. He's also a former star here at Baseball HQ Radio and always a welcome guest. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. Sure hope to see you on those BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Stitcher, iTunes, Pocket Cast, wherever you catch your pods, and give us a review and a rating. That really does help new listeners find the show. That keeps the podcast growing, and that keeps the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Friday with our regular news and commentary edition. And then next Tuesday, our Tuesday tout, Baseball HQ Bullpens columnist Doug Dennis on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk to you Friday, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.